Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, this is Charles Sims, and welcome to In Social Work. When thinking about trauma-informed care, the discussion often centers on, how do I integrate this into my practice? Do I need to obtain special skills to treat trauma in the clients that I work with? How do I incorporate the five guiding principles, trustworthiness, collaboration, safety, choice, and empowerment into my practice? If I practice in a trauma-informed way, how might that be different from how I practice now? These are the necessary questions for the social worker looking to adopt the trauma-informed framework, but it represents only part of the story. Using a trauma-informed approach necessarily involves an agency-wide change to support the shift in philosophy and service delivery of its entire staff. In this podcast, our guests discuss the experience of how and why one agency came to adopt and incorporate trauma-informed care into its service delivery. In 2013, two agencies, KidsLink, a children's mental health provider, and Mosaic Counseling, which offered services to children, men, and women, merged to form Horizon Family and Community Services, headquartered in Kitchener, Ontario. Among its many services, Horizon specializes in children's mental health, youth engagement, individual and family counseling, parental support and education, and community wellness. Its creation not only involved the joining of these two agencies, but also the incorporation of trauma-informed care as its practice philosophy. Leslie Barabal, a registered social worker, is the Director of Children's Mental Health Services at Horizon Family and Community Services. Ms. Barabal has worked in the field of children's mental health for the last 19 years. She holds a master's degree from Wilfrid Laurier University and a specialized honors bachelor's of arts degree in psychology from the University of Guelph. Her experience includes children and family therapy, clinical supervision of home and community-based treatment programs, program management, program development, partnership development, and community collaboration an intake clinician for Horizon in the Waterloo region of Ontario, Carlos Neves is also a registered social worker. He holds a Master's of Social Work degree from the University of Toronto, as well as a Master's degree in Sociology from Queen's University. In his current role, Mr. Neves provides counseling and assessment services to children and their families, as well as providing clinical supervision to social work interns. In addition, he regularly facilitates a trauma-informed parenting workshop for parents and caregivers, which he co-developed. Ms. Barabal and Mr. Nebs was interviewed in April of 2014 by Dr. Steve Halliday, a member of the In Social Work staff. Hello, I'm Steve Halliday, and I'm here with Leslie Barabal and Carlos Nebs. So, Leslie and Carlos, could you please tell us a little bit about KidsLink and Horizon? 
KidsLink began a long time ago as an orphanage in the village of St. Agatha, Ontario in 1858. And in 1966, it became a residential treatment centre. And in 1987, it became a designated children's mental health centre with funding from the Ministry of Children and Youth Services. So for many years, KidsLink has provided a wide range of children's mental health services in community settings, home settings, and school-based settings. And in addition to day treatment and residential treatment settings. Then in April 2013, one year ago, KidsLink amalgamated with another long-standing community organization called Mosaic Family Counseling. So together, KidsLink and Mosaic formed Horizon Family and Community Services which is a multi-service agency that provides a broad range of supportive, therapeutic, and preventative programs to individuals and families. So our story today is going to focus primarily on the former KidsLink and the journey that we took towards our trauma-informed practice in our children's mental health services. However, it's important to know that there's a part two to this journey, which is going to evolve through the journey of amalgamation, the coming together as a new organization from a trauma-informed perspective. Great. And I understand that you have a very innovative program at Horizon called Front Door. Could you please share a little bit about that program? Front Door is a partnership between two organizations in the community, Horizon and Lutherwood. And Front Door functions as a centralized point of access, really, for children, youth, and families who have a question, a concern, a worry about a child or youth's mental, emotional wellness. So Front Door operates as a centralized information service to the community, so parents, family members, community members, and community professionals can call and speak to one of our intake clinicians if they're just needing basic information about children's mental health. It's also a place where people can call as their first starting point when they have a concern about their child, and our intake clinicians will hear the story and point families in the right direction. That may mean a referral to a community service, or it may mean a referral to one of the children's mental health programs that are provided through Lutherwood or Horizon. Great. And can you tell us a bit about uh, your journey of becoming trauma-informed? Sure, well, I can start, but I know that Carlos will jump in as well because he's a big part of this story. So I guess the journey began really from an internal awareness that started to develop that a vast number of the children we were serving had experienced some form of trauma, as well as the realization that we might unwittingly be re-traumatizing children in our work with them because we didn't have enough knowledge. At the same time, we also started to develop an awareness of the impact that trauma has on our staff in the form of vicarious trauma, chronic stress in the organization, and uh, what we later came to be aware was called collective disturbance. So we started in a number of different places. One place that we started was we decided to start asking very deliberate questions of all of our clients at front door in the form of a trauma screening questionnaire. And we suspected that what we would learn through this process was one, that a number of our clients had experienced trauma and we hoped to learn more about their experiences and the impact that these experiences had on them. The developing of the trauma screen and implementation of it was a journey in and of itself. We really started quite tentatively asking very few, very broad questions of our clients 
probably that we're quite reflective of our own discomfort in asking the questions. I'm not sure that at that point we really were certain we would know what to do with the information if it came our way. So we realized after experimenting for a while that we really needed to create an atmosphere where we were relaying to clients that it is really safe and it's really okay to talk about your stories here, to talk about the traumatic experiences you've had, in addition to the experiences, the symptoms they were experiencing. So I'm going to let Carlos sure. fill in a little bit more about that journey. So as part of that journey, we got together as an intake team. We consulted with other programs in the organization. And we started to ask ourselves, what do we need to learn about what's happened to children and their families in order to not miss trauma and some of the impacts of trauma that the kids are living with? And then the related question is, how do we have this conversation without re-traumatizing children and families in the process? Because one of the things that was, I guess, formed part of the anxiety that we were working with is a kind of widespread belief that we discovered exists out there in that trauma itself, unless you're especially trained and you have a high level of expertise, that you know, we shouldn't be talking to people about trauma because we could be re-traumatizing them. And so I think at the back of everyone's mind there was that worry that unless we found a way to have this conversation in a safe, non-threatening way, that, that we would be creating more anxiety and stress for kids. So that was part of the thought at the beginning of this. And the way we overcame that or learned to work with that in a productive way was we, we got together and developed a script. How would we talk to kids and families about this? And, you know, what are the key messages? And one of the messages is that, you know, trauma is, is widespread, is that almost everyone we know has been touched in some way by trauma, either directly or indirectly. And trauma, or what we're calling adversity as well, is a part of life. Now, of course, there's a degree and a scale in terms of the severity of trauma, but it is part of the fabric of everyday life. So that was one of the messages, is to try to introduce it as part of the experience of living and also to educate around how some of the traumatic experiences may have been shaping a child's behavior, a child's emotional wellness, a child's uh, social relationships, and how that impacted the family. So the education piece. And then finally, the message of hope. One of the messages in the preamble to this trauma screening questionnaire was that, you know, kids are really resilient. We know this from experience and from research. They bounce back from adversity and through healing and through support, they can not only survive their trauma, but they can overcome it and they can lead productive, fulfilling, and meaningful lives. So taking the time to leave people with those kinds of messages, and of course, giving them permission to share only what felt safe to share, and putting it all out on the table, that was a really important part for us, to create safety for the kids and for the families, and also to create a safety for ourselves so that we could feel like we were having those conversations in a responsible and an ethical manner. I think the other thing that the trauma screening questionnaire really accomplished was, well, first of all, we know, we learned that if you don't ask, they won't tell. So it really did, from the client's first experience with one of our services, gave the message that we want to hear your story, we want to hear your pain, we can handle it, and we can help. I think the other really interesting thing that happened was a lot of parents through answering and responding to these questions, had never realized that their child had experienced trauma. 
and it was quite a realization for them. Often parents also started connecting the dots from their own childhoods and their own life experiences, realizing that they too had been impacted by trauma. So we realized very quickly that not only was the trauma screen information important to us at Front Door and to the subsequent program staff who would be working with families to really be able to respond to them in helpful ways, but that we needed to be very responsive quickly uh, following that conversation with families to provide parents with more information. So that led to the development of trauma-informed parent and caregiver workshops. Right. I can talk a bit about that. So what we did is, again, we came together and uh, we did some social learning and we worked together to develop this uh, trauma-informed parenting and caregiver workshop. The aims of the workshop were to provide some education around what trauma is, what the impacts of trauma are, the level of the brain, at the level of the spirit, at the level of the mind and body, and at the level of family relationships and peer relationships. So we really wanted to map out sort of what the ripple effects of uh, trauma are uh, to put it in a broader context. That was part of the education. The other aspect of the education was to try to understand what kinds of responses to trauma would be supportive and helpful to encourage that uh, journey of recovery and resilience in the lives of, of kids who've experienced uh, trauma. So that was another component, and explicitly which kinds of strategies would be helpful for parents and caregivers to respond to kids who may be expressing their needs through certain behaviors or emotion regulation types of challenges that once we put in the context of what's happened to them as opposed to defining it in terms of what they're doing wrong, we began to see it as a response to their environment and the only way that they knew how based on their experiences. But that really helped shift the perspective away from viewing kids as a bundle of problematic behaviors and seeing them instead as part of a context, part of a family, part of a community, and responding in their own creative and resilient ways to the harm that they've experienced. And once you put it in that perspective, then we could understand better what the needs that they were expressing were behind those behaviors. So for example, you know, a child could, uh, could be in a classroom setting, and the opinion might be that uh, they're having trouble attending to the information, they're not paying attention, they're distracted, disruptive, etc. And without any prior knowledge of what this child may have experienced, we don't get a full understanding of what might be causing that. So by bringing the trauma lens, we can talk about things like intrusive thoughts that might be connected to certain memories the child might be having. For, having, for example, if they're in a classroom setting and um, it's loud and a teacher tries to get their attention and their tone happens to be loud because they need to get their attention and there's a lot of noise in the classroom, that child's experienced some abuse in the past, verbal or physical abuse uh, by an adult upon them, they may experience that as a trigger. They could in that moment relive uh, the trauma that they've experienced in the past and it could bring back a flood of intrusive memories and trigger them into a state of hyperarousal so that they feel unsafe. But in that context, they could react in a variety of ways. They could react in an aggressive way. They could react in a way that withdraws from the situation or they may not be able to attend to the information and therefore be sort of labeled as not listening. That's just sort of one example that kind of reframe what the experience of someone 
his experience of trauma might be like and how they might be perceived differently. So another thing that we developed, because not all parents and caregivers are able, you know, to attend a workshop following a meeting with us and the trauma screening conversation, Siblink also developed a really beautiful trauma toolkit, so a package of information for parents and caregivers and teachers that really are a companion to the workshop that provide the same kind of information but are there to reinforce all of that information and ideas once families are out and about at home and in the community and in the school setting. So another part of our journey was the adoption of the sanctuary model. Okay, so maybe I can speak to some of this. Uh, so about four years ago, a conversation started in our organization around which model do we turn to in order to get this trauma-informed practice going and off the ground. And um, the sanctuary model of trauma-informed care came to our attention, and in particular the work of Dr. Sandra Bloom. And um, as a consequence of uh, learning about that program, and uh, we actually went to the States, a number of us went and, and did some training in, in the, the Andrews Center in Yonkers. We came back with a sort of a revitalized sense of how to transform our organization. We came back with a plan for how to incorporate trauma-informed principles into our organization, not just in our work with children, youth, and their families, but just as importantly in our work with one another. So part of uh, what the sanctuary model tries to teach is that the workplace culture has a big impact on how kids experience service, and in particular, how the traumatic experiences of children could be reenacted and re-triggered if they're in settings where staff are unaware of their trauma and what the responses are and don't feel supported themselves and don't feel like they have safety in their work environments with one another. So we spend a lot of time asking ourselves, do we feel safe in our own work? Not just physically safe, but emotionally safe and socially safe. And what do we need from one another in order to be in a trauma-informed way with one another? Part of what we did is uh, we started to orient to the seven commitments in the sanctuary model. So these are basic ideas and values about safety, emotional intelligence, social learning, open communication, these sorts of values, being able to deal with loss, orienting to the future, these sorts of values, we wanted to embody them and put them into practice. So we, over the course of several months, we came up with a plan of just how to do that. So we met in different groups and different committees and sort of spread throughout the organization and in a real sort of like hands-on way developed a workplace culture that reflected these values so that we could see that what we were doing and how we were living this reality, there was a real affinity with the kinds of care we were offering the kids that came into contact with us. So again, back to the, one of the first messages that I started with was that you know, when kids experience trauma and they come to us, the first step is to recognize that we too are touched by trauma and that even in our work, that there's often a parallel process at work. And so to understand that, it, that there's not this great gap or divide between our clients and ourselves, that we are part of the same world, and understanding how trauma has impacted us in our own workplace is a good place to start from, that we give us a sense of feeling connected with the kids and families that we work with. So those are some of the thoughts that come to mind. I know we did some activities where each sort of program or team would 
take a month and reflect on one of the commitments, for example, the commitment of open communication, and they would come together and develop some activities to share with the rest of the organization in a fun, playful way, really embody what open communication looks like, and even look for examples of it in action with ourselves and with the children and the youth and the families that, that we work with. The whole intention of that was to bring it alive, because it's only through practice and through action that our values and our principles can be lived, and that's how you transform workplace culture. One other point I want to say about this is that it was also a wonderful experience in that we were able to discover and to perceive for the first time how much of what we were doing was actually trauma-informed. It just wasn't in our consciousness yet. So becoming more conscious of it allowed us to direct it even more and to enhance it even more. It reminds me of sort of the solution-focused approach and looking for exceptions and trying to find a different language to name the experience that, that we have so that we can understand a, a different layer of it that may have been there, but we just didn't have the language to, to actually articulate it. So that was a real gift to us, I think, that we may do so through the sanctuary model. And I would just add to your last comments there that, as you said, it was a nice discovery that so mm -hmm. much of what we were doing was trauma-informed, but we were able to do it in a much more deliberate way. So the question, how are you feeling today, took on a different meaning because mm -hmm. the question was being asked because we really wanted to know. Right. How can I help you yes. today yes. took on a different meaning. Mm -hmm. People developed their own safety plans and posted them in their offices so that if people noticed that someone was off balance or struggling, they might be able to offer a suggestion because they would know what was in that person's safety plan. So you've mentioned some of the ways that you've become more self-conscious in how you deliver services and, and interact with your colleagues on a day-to-day -day basis. Could you share some more details about sort of the specific ways that trauma-informed care shapes your specific programs and services? We emphasize specific things much more in our programs now. So Carlos has mentioned safety again and again, and it is absolutely a cornerstone of our work across all of our programs of really understanding what the children and families we're working with need to have in order to feel safe and secure, what to do children need from our staff, what do they need from their parents and caregivers, what do parents and caregivers need from us. So we really pay attention to that. Collaboration. How do we meaningfully engage children and families in the development of their own treatment goals and their own treatment plans and all of the activities that they participate in towards meeting those goals? Choice is another huge part of our work with everyone, offering children and families choice in terms of where they meet, how long they meet, what activities they engage in, what type of therapy is a good fit for them, you know, is play therapy a good fit, is music therapy a good fit, would a child benefit from a sensory room, and how would they like to use that sensory room to meet their needs and feel safe and manage themselves. So really giving people as much control over the elements of their programs is really critical. Similar to that is empowerment. So providing information and education, educating children about trauma, helping them to understand the impact that those experiences may be having on them and how they're experiencing those in their relationships and in their bodies, providing parents with the same information so that they can better understand their children, 
teaching them strategies to deal with overwhelming situations and overwhelming emotions and overwhelming feelings in their bodies, things like meditation and relaxation, teaching them about wellness, about the, you know, what feels good to put in your body versus what makes your body feel sluggish and anxious and tense, giving people lots of opportunity to talk about their traumatic experiences or express them in a way that's comfortable, be that through art therapy, through play therapy, that sort of thing, finding ways that are safe for people to express those, those memories. Trustworthiness is another huge focus, you know, having consistent, reliable staff as much as we possibly can who, you know, demonstrate honesty, who uphold their commitments, who follow through on their commitments, where we can't have consistency all the time, how we work as a team and show families and children that we're working together. Just, I would just add to that, I think, in a way, this what I'm about to say now is sort of weaved in through everything we do. And what I mean is the message of hope and resilience. So the education part of trauma and creating an environment where you know, kids and families can share their experiences with an expectation that we can not only manage that pain and anguish, but that they have permission to express it and that we can hold that with them and find a way to orient them to the present and to the future. Now, of course, everyone is on their own timeline with that kind of process of recovery, but the message of hope, the message of mourning the loss of the past and orienting towards the future, that this comes all in the same package when we're educating people about trauma and trying to be part of the healing process of, of trauma. I think another thing that comes to mind that is worth mentioning is sort of our awareness of how the brain works and kind of how neuroscience has uh, had an impact, I think, on how we think about, about health and how we think about trauma and how kids themselves are becoming more educated around how brains work. So when we talk about anxiety, we talk about trauma, we talk about fight or flight or freeze, that response in, in child-friendly ways, we explain what's happening is in the brain. And then from there, that gives people an understanding that, that the brain is, is doing what it needs to do to try to keep itself safe. Sometimes it can get stuck in an alarm state. And there are ways to sort of illustrate that understanding for kids that, that they understand and that they can sort of hold on to and get some, some meaning from. And what's wonderful about what we know now about the brain is that the neuroplasticity aspect. The brain does get rewired when there's early trauma, but that doesn't have to be a permanent condition. Through supportive, loving, healing responses, an environment that encourages coping and skill building and wellness, that the brain can rewire itself and, and overcome uh, the trauma that it's, that it's experienced. So I think that's worth mentioning because it's a new lens that we can view trauma through. And, you know, kids kind of like talking about the brain, especially if you make mm -hmm. it playful, they sort of get into it. When you asked about what trauma-informed practice looks like in our organization, it reminded me of a story I heard a few weeks ago about a child in one of our residential treatment programs. And this child has experienced a tremendous amount of trauma and frequently feels very overwhelmed and unsafe. And, you know, in a residential treatment setting like that, when children, when you're not able to, when you're not yet at a point and they're not yet at a point where they can manage those overwhelming emotions in a way that keeps them safe and allows others to be safe, sometimes staff need to provide physical restraint. 
But of course, that's not the preference. So all of the staff in the residential treatment program meet monthly for something called a restraint review. And that involves all of the direct service staff, but as well, you know, the administrative staff and the housekeeping staff and the maintenance staff, so that everyone has a good understanding of each of the children in the programs and what's really happening for them. So there was one child in particular who was struggling a great deal and had experienced a very high number of restraints. And the team got together to really understand this child's experiences and realized that in a group setting throughout the day, this child was often very overwhelmed with the noise and the people and the constant interaction. And the belief was that this child would benefit from regular breaks throughout the day. Having one-to-one -one time with someone would be very grounding and really help him feel safe. But there just kind of weren't enough direct service staff to go around. We couldn't take child youth workers off the floor every hour to accomplish this. This particular child has a real interest in cooking. So the plan that was established and that has worked so beautifully was for this child to go to the kitchen on a regular basis and work with our cook. And this child produces wonderful treats in the kitchen, which he then gets to share with other children and with other staff. The result of really understanding this child's needs and structuring his day around not only his needs, but with a focus on resilience and a focus on helping him to develop some new skills at the same time with a nurturing, safe adult has resulted in a dramatic decrease in the need for that external restraint to help him cope. So it sounds like having a trauma-informed lens has really affected the services and the care that you give at every level and really helped you to find creative solutions when working with your families and the children. Now, one thing that I'm wondering about is, as staff members at KidsLink and Corizon who've been present and an active part of this transition to trauma-informed care, what has the experience of this transition been like for you? Well, it's been a bit of a ride. When we got started with this a few years ago, there was a lot of energy, a lot of excitement, a lot of uncertainty as well, and a lot of, um, I guess I could say the word fear, because we were looking at ourselves very closely. I mean, we're examining our practices from a perspective of, uh, are we doing what we purport to do, and that is to say, you know, serve children, youth, families to the best of our ability without re-traumatizing them and helping them learn re resilience and, and skills for coping with life. I think the answer to that is yes, we were doing that, but we were doing it, and some of it not as consciously as we needed to be doing it. And we weren't doing it from a trauma-informed perspective, again, as comprehensively as we needed to be doing it. So at first, it was very exciting, and it also meant that we had a lot of internal work to do, and we had a lot of workplace culture to create together. So that meant having lots and lots of conversations in different contexts, breaking down the silos between programs, and really learning from each other and discovering the wealth of experience and of knowledge that we all could bring to the table. That was really exciting. That was a very productive phase in this journey, and uh, it's one that I think uh, created a lot of good bonds between people and greater understanding about people live with and experience. I personally learned a deeper way what frontline staff in the milieu programs experience on a day-to-day -day basis. 
and as a consequence, just a willingness to be more available to help and support in whatever way they needed. I think that was a that was a key moment for me, um, and also to notice that we had permission. There was a space in our organization that was opened up for us to articulate what we needed in order to feel safe, in order to feel like we were making a difference in the lives of the children and youth that we were that we were serving. So it was very exciting. There was a lot of learning, a lot of information that occurred. Then we started to spread the message beyond our boundaries so that people in the community you know, started to learn that, uh, and to become aware that we are a trauma-informed organization. And when they are working with us, we will bring that lens to the situation as well, so that will not be missed. I mean, one of the experiences now is that with the amalgamation, we're still on a journey. It's just some more uncertainty in the air as to what that will exactly will look like. And so that sort of first phase of creating that internal culture has shifted a bit. We're in a different place now. We're living it more unselfconsciously, I would say, this at this moment. And also there are some challenges. A lot of people that were involved in this journey have moved on to other opportunities. So there's some of that historical memory that has to be preserved. And when new folks come on, we have a responsibility to try to sort of share with them some of the stories of how we got to this place. So it's, it changes constant, but that's also one of the lessons we learn in this journey is that you know, part of what it means to be resilient and to bounce back from adversity is to be able to grieve your losses and to do so in a way that's meaningful so then you can feel like there's space to move forward in a productive way. And that's exactly what we're trying to do as an organization. Great. You mentioned some of the challenges that you've experienced. What are some of the other successes that have come out of this transition? Well, there are a lot of things that have come out of this. I think one of the biggest ones, and it's such a simple thing, but a very powerful thing, and that is a common language. Conversations about trauma and what has happened to a child as opposed to what's wrong. Much more discussion about resilience as opposed to disorder. Those things have permeated our culture and have become much more just a way of being. I see much more deliberate attempts for everyone across the organization to engage in more open conversation, um, more open communication, to understand each other's unique perspectives, to provide support and safety to each other, to support one another, to implement their own safety plans, and to be well, to practice wellness. Wellness and resilience are two pieces that really, I think, complemented the trauma-informed perspective as well as the child rights perspective. Those four things have really become the cornerstones of our work. So really looking for opportunities to build children's resilience and families' resilience, build their capacity, establish stronger connections for them in the community. Those have all become a much bigger focus, a much bigger focus on staff wellness as well as the wellness of our families and really providing each other and educating each other, I guess, about wellness and how to take care of ourselves and how to have much more control over Mm -hmm. our own state of mind, how our bodies feel physically. Um, Those have been some really positive additions to the organization and to the way we work with people. Just to add to that, I mean, it reminds me of one of the things we talk about in the trauma-informed workshop, that is that moment of creating safety for oneself, 
and self-care for the caregiver as absolutely critical as part of the journey of a child's recovery from trauma. And so we use the analogy of, you know, if you've ever been on an airplane, there's, there's the moment when you're informed that if there's a drop in cabin pressure and the oxygen masks come down, who do they, what's the instruction? The instruction is for the adults to put on their masks first. And that's because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of your kids, right? Because you, you can pass out before you have a chance to do that. So that sort of drives the message home in our field. Self-care is something we talk about a lot with our clients, but we're also struggle a lot with to do ourselves. And I think there's complex reasons for that. One of them is, you know, the need is so great in the community for mental health services that uh, agencies like ours are swamped with needs. So there's always the pressure of being able to meet that need with the resources that, that we do have. So that's in part responsible for some of the stress that occurs in, in people who are working in this field. And also, I think, the belief that we're in this work because we really want to make a difference and, and we care, and these are real values. At the same time, you know, you have to be careful not to become a sacrificial person in this regard, and that is to say, to not give yourself permission to say, here's my limit. In order for me to stay well, I need to learn to say no, and I need to learn to take the time take care of myself first. And I think that emphasis has occurred in this agency so that people have been given permission to speak openly about what they need and to take care of themselves in order to be able to take care for others. So I think that comes directly from a trauma-informed perspective and is one that we're trying to live, I think, more openly now. So you've described the journey that you've taken to get to this point and where you are now. So the next question is, where are you headed next? And what is the vision for trauma-informed care for KidsLink and Corizon going forward? Well, the vision is that we will have a vision going forward, really. You know, in the year ahead, we're going to be coming together as a new organization to develop a trauma-informed framework for Corizon and also to continue to grow our trauma treatment services. So really, the year ahead for us is to come together and bring all of our programs and services together to really take a look at how we all understand trauma and what trauma-informed means to Corizon as a whole. Now, at the same time, there's something very exciting happening in our community, the community in which we work. Corizon has been very actively involved in something in the development of a community trauma initiative. And this community trauma initiative spent the last year and a bit completing a needs assessment across our community, talking to stakeholders, talking to community partners, and talking to community members about trauma services in the community and what are the needs and what are the gaps. And this has led to the development of a very significant project that's going to be moving forward this year where there are going to be three community working groups. One group will be working specifically on trauma education across our community. Another group will be working on developing a consistent trauma-informed approach across our community organizations. And then another group will be working on enhancing our trauma-specific services that are available across our community. So Corizon is going to be very involved in all three of these initiatives, but we feel like we have a lot to offer the community in terms of expanding our trauma-informed knowledge and really developing a trauma-informed community of practice here. 
Well, it sounds like you have a lot of really great things coming up and that you're moving forward in some really, really wonderful directions. Do you have any closing thoughts? I guess my closing thoughts are trauma is real. Trauma has an impact. It's part of everyday life. So we can't imagine ourselves as separated out from it. When someone comes to us and they've experienced trauma, it's really important for us to find a place within ourselves to remain open to their pain so that they have the message that we can survive their pain and therefore they can survive their pain. That to me is probably the most important first step. And the second step is to take collective responsibility for trauma and how it impacts kids and families. What I mean by that is to share the the responsibility, the burden, if you will, and to commit ourselves to providing those opportunities for growth and resilience and future that children and families who have been impacted for trauma desperately need and deserve. So my closing thought is we're all in this together and we all need to perhaps remind ourselves that there is something each and every one of us can do to help kids and families recover from trauma. That was a very, very good point and very strong finish. Thank you for this opportunity. Yes, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to a discussion of one agency's experience in adopting a trauma-informed perspective. We hope that you found it instructive. Additionally, we at In Social Work would like to acknowledge the assistance of the Government of Canada and the University at Buffalo's Canadian Studies Committee in the production of this podcast. I'm your host, Charles Sims. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.